0: Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas Fort Worth region. Become a member today at DFWworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haines and Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Please welcome our co sponsor tonight's event, Amy Hoffman.
1: Good evening and welcome. I hope you didn't see the, right, the show of hands, but those of you who have not come to the Crow Collection, I hope you will put us on your list. And if you've been before, come back after July 11th because we will open Texas Collects Asia China with superb collections from all over the state, primarily San Antonio, Houston, Albany, Texas, and Dallas, with extremely amazing um, works in ceramic and jade that highlight what Texas is thinking about Asia right now in 2008. So very exciting. I'm honored to be here and thrilled to partner with the China Series From 1974 to 1975, between appointments as chairman of the Republic National Committee and director of the Central Intelligence Agency, George H.W. Bush served as head of the United States liaison office in Beijing. At this time, Sino-American relations were starting to formalize, but official diplomatic relations between the two countries were not established until 1979. Isn't that amazing? You think of what's happened in the last 28 years. Bush's day-to-day diary of his experiences offers insight on international alliances and relationships with China's leaders. It includes his impressions of China and its people formed while exploring Beijing by bicycle, taking language language lessons, and playing ping pong. (laughs) Edited by our honored guest this evening, Jeffrey A. Engel, The China Diary of George H.W. Bush, The Making of a Global President, marks a significant addition to the history of U.S.-China relations. He provides a glimpse into a fundamental period of international diplomatic history and its impact on a future commander-in-chief. And just from personal experience, I've recently edited Trammell Crow's diary and autobiography, and it is an extremely hard thing to do. I'm sure you can appreciate that because you really have to capture... And that person's perspective and almost stuff inside their brain. So I'm really, I applaud that effort. Here's what you don't know. In many ways, George Bush Sr., you do know this, established a foundation for US and Texas relations with China. A decade later, in the early 1980s, a well known Dallas real estate leader, Trammell Crow, worked closely with China as the company developed the Shanghai trademark. Multiple trips in the early 80s forged new relationships with business leaders and a greater passion for Asia. Delegations of Chinese leaders visited Dallas often, learning the business and reciprocating Trammell's interest in their world. Then Chinese President Jiang Zemin made history on one visit when he learned to drive a car (laughs) under Trammell's tutelage at the farm, Mill Creek Farm in East Texas. Has anyone heard that story before? Jim probably has. In the fall of 1989, however, Trammell's role as an unofficial diplomat between China and Dallas was placed in the national spotlight on a much more somber level. By the request of George H.W. Bush, Trammell hand-delivered a letter to Jiang Zemin following the tragic events at Tiananmen Square. He was the first Westerner allowed to meet with the president. This letter expressed our country's dismay at the actions of the Chinese government, it was a solemn tour, but important as Trammell found himself again at a nexus in history. There, there's more to that story, but you can read it in an upcoming catalog. One of many extraordinary circumstances that he described in his journals, and that's what I've been editing. But this is not about Trammell or Trammell's diaries. This is about a president and about an author. Jeffrey A. Ingle is an assistant professor of history and public policy with Texas A&M University's Bush School of Government and Public Service. He's the Evelyn and Ed F. Cruz, class of 49, faculty fellow and director of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs. He holds a Ph.D. in American history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, graduated from Cornell University, and has studied at St. Catherine's College at Oxford. Before coming to the Bush School, he was a lecturer in history and international relations at the University of Pennsylvania. He was also a visiting assistant professor at Haverford College and an Olin postdoctoral fellow in international security studies at Yale. That's a lot for your young face. (laughs) Am I allowed to say that? Um, at the Bush School, Engel teaches courses in American foreign policy and the evolution of international strategy, with primary research interests including diplomacy's domestic and localized effects, technology and foreign policy, and economic warfare. His Cold War at 30,000 Feet, the Anglo American Fight for Aviation Supremacy, was published by Harvard in 2007. Have any of you read that book? Good job. <laughs> He is also the editor of Local Consequences of the Global Cold War, and that was published in 2008. Again, this is a very busy, busy scholar. The recently published diary of George H.W. Bush, and as you know, is the private diary of the president. And according to Walter McDougall, this is one of my favorite quotes, Ingalls' historical editing is the perfect frame to this lucid window on late Maoist China. Perfect is a nice word to have in a quote. In the Bush Diary's candid entries, the reader can eavesdrop on a statesman educating himself for the personal pragmatic diplomacy that would change the world. What's interesting is that the president never intended for these diaries to be published. Well, they have. <laughs> and he certainly never imagined it would, it would um, incite such dialogue, and I think that's what's So tremendous and published as it was, and you're not finished yet. Dr. Engel's next project is seeking monsters to destroy, language in war from Thomas Jefferson to George W. Bush, and Oxford is publishing that volume. So, from his words to his voice, please welcome Dr. Jeffrey Engel. Thank you. you
0: That's such a kind introduction. I'm struck, especially from one, from one diary editor to another, um, by something that you said in particular, that when you spend uh, countless hours working on someone's diary, you begin to get inside their head a little bit, um, sometimes too much. Uh, I remember at one point when I was working on this, coming out late at night from the, from the office and walking into the living room when my wife was watching TV and saying, you know, I think I'm really like this Bush guy. I mean, you know, we, I get up early. I play tennis. I mean, we're basically the same person, right? Uh, she told me to go to bed. So, um, <clears throat> in any event, thank you for that for that kind introduction and, and my sympathies for your editing process. So <clears throat> it is indeed a really a tremendous pleasure to be here uh, tonight in order to speak to the Dallas Fort Worth World Affairs Council. And as a, a Texan, granted a relatively new Texan, but a, a Texan nonetheless, it gives me great pride whenever I realize the true depth of the international experience and the international expertise that we have within our home state. And your reputation here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area really is, is deep and wide, and, and you're, you're greatly appreciated. And so, therefore, this is a particular honor. So I, I thank you tonight for having me here. I'd like to begin my talk tonight with a broad, but I think particularly relevant question, given recent news events, and that is, what experience do you think is best and best serves someone who might want to become President of the United States? Government experience is usually considered a prerequisite, yet Abraham Lincoln, considered by many to be our greatest president, had scant elected ef- uh, experience, only two years, in fact, of elected experience before he was elected president. Perhaps you might think a military career would be a useful bid on your resume to become president. And we've had generals like Washington or Eisenhower who proved themselves capable presidents, yet at the same time, we've suffered through such men as Grant or Taylor, whose presidential records never quite lived up to their previous military experience. Some presidents have been academics. Many have been lawyers. uh, Others excelled in business. Not one in the final analysis had a resume that exactly equaled all the others. And more importantly, it seems to me, especially in this election season, not one of them had a resume that would absolutely, and with any, with any degree of certainty, predict success in the Oval Office. In fact, if you push me against the wall and ask me to tell you which president had the single best pre-presidential resume, the one that you would look at and say, undoubtedly, this person is going to be a wild success in office, you would have to pick Herbert Hoover. Um, and from the Snickers, uh, you all know that his presidential experience did not quite live up to the pre-presidential hype. What experience, therefore, does predict success in this job is really anyone's guess. And I've come here, therefore, tonight to discuss the pre-presidential experience of George H.W. Bush. And his pre-presidential resume, I think, had few equals. He was successful in business, in politics, in government. He was an exceptional student, he was even a war hero. This litany of success, in fact, translated quite well to his White House. In particular, when we think of Bush's presidency, foreign affairs immediately leap to mind. Bush is primarily remembered today as an international president who governed over unprecedented transitions within the international system. The Cold War ended, the Gulf War was won, and the Soviet Union ceased to exist. When Panama, Tiananmen Square, and NAFTA are factored into the equation, it is clear that these were tumultuous times indeed. And Bush is generally called today fondly for his savvy, in in his savvy management, in handling these series of crises. These crises, I think, that were more numerous and more complex than faced any other single presidential administration in the 20th century, save Franklin Roosevelt's, during World War II. But Bush's international reputation also offers a bit of a puzzle for the presidential historian. Specifically, where in his impressive pre-presidential resume do we find and do we locate his international success? Just what in his background gave him such skill as a diplomat? Before he was president, of course, he had amassed an impressive list of foreign policy credentials, being ambassador to the United Nations and Washington's chief representative to China. He was head of the CIA and, of course, he spent eight years as vice president to Ronald Reagan. Now, this is an impressive resume to be sure, but even it seems unsatisfying in our quest to find and to locate exactly where Bush's diplomatic prowess arrived. For it is not as though Bush spent his entire career preparing for foreign affairs. In fact, on the contrary, he came to diplomacy rather late in his career. And with better electoral luck, in fact, he might never have come to diplomacy at all. Most of his life, until 1971, was spent as a businessman and as a domestically focused politician, almost exclusively interested in domestic issues. He turned to diplomacy only after losing his second bid for a Texas Senate seat in 1970, securing the job of United Nations ambassador only after successfully lobbying President Richard Nixon And Henry Kissinger, his chief foreign policy advisor, successfully lobbying them that he was utterly ignorant of foreign affairs. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger want to keep a complete tight hold over all things (laughs) diplomatic. And he went to them, went to the Oval Office. First, in fact, Bush went to Nixon and said, I'd like to be Treasury Secretary. Nixon said, you're not qualified. Uh, He said, okay, what else you got? And they said, well, there's a job open at the United Nations, but you can only have this if you keep your mouth shut and if you do what we tell you to do. And Bush said, I know nothing about foreign affairs. I'm your man. Um, Bush's experience at the United Nations, however, awakened a deep passion, I think, for foreign affairs. Yet I would contend that of all the numerous experiences that he had before 1989 when he assumed the White House, it was his time in China that, in fact, left the deepest mark upon his diplomacy. The 15 months that he spent as Washington's chief representative in Beijing from 1974 to 75, more than any other period, offers clues for understanding the styles and the policies that made his presidency such an international success. Three particular elements of his style stand out. First, his emphasis on personal diplomacy. Second, his emphasis on quiet diplomacy and his concurrent preference for stability within the international system. And third, his embrace of credibility both personal and national as vital diplomatic characteristics. I would caution, however, that the way that Bush understood the concept of credibility was significantly different than the way the term is bantered around today in international circles. Moreover, I will argue tonight that Bush's China experience has directly altered the decisions he made while president. The Bush presidency was in this sense very much made in China. Now we know so much about Bush's time in China because he kept a personal diary while there and it is of course that diary I'm here to discuss with you tonight. Thus before telling the story of how Bush came to Beijing, what he experienced there and ultimately how this experience affected his presidency, let me tell you a little bit about the diary itself. It's a fascinating but also at times a quirky text. Bush first began keeping a personal diary in November of 1970 as a way of dealing with the emotional roller coaster of just having lost his Senate bid. He continued to keep his diary throughout much of the rest of his life. Yet I am told, I have not seen them, but I am told that Bush's presidential diary is incomplete. It's incomplete for vast months at a time. There is not a single reference, in fact, that Bush made, not a single contribution to his diary that Bush made for the entire Gulf War period. This omission tells us a lot about how Bush chose to keep the diary. He kept it, as was already mentioned, for himself. He's a fundamentally modest man, it seems to me, and he never wrote with any concept or any notion of preserving a record for posterity. He instead used the diary solely for his own use, as a way of processing the broader questions of his day. In time, he came to use it, I like to think, as an artist might use a private sketchbook, as a way of exploring new ideas and new concepts. He recorded it only for himself. And when I say record, I mean it, because Bush did not write the diary longhand. He did not type it. Rather, he he, uh, dictated it nightly into a tape recorder to be transcribed later, in some cases years later, by assistants back in Texas. Uh, Indeed, for the China Diary itself, all that we have left are those original uh, transcriptions. The original tapes have unfortunately been lost. Now, the way that Bush composed his diary offers frustrations as well as insights. Bush never, for example, went back through his text to proof for grammar or for consistency the way a letter writer or a diary writer in a traditional sense might. He was perfectly content, for example, to record in his diary that he had lunch with Joe today without feeling any need to explain who Joe was. Now, I've spent much of the last three years trying to figure out just who those Joes were, uh, identifying as many of the events and people as possible, but some, I have to say, are simply lost to the ages. He recorded, for example, meeting a very friendly young couple from Texas in late 1974, the Smiths. Um, I'll leave it to you to ponder just how many couples from Smith there were in Texas in 1974. By the way, if that rings a bell with anybody, let me know. Such small frustrations for the historian, however, pale in comparison to the treasure trove the diary offers as a way of understanding Bush and these exciting times. For the way that Bush recorded the diary means that we are sure to have his innermost thoughts. And in fact, Bush served in China during particularly tumultuous times in American history, featuring economic, social, and political woes at home and difficult times abroad, for they taunt, including the violent end of the Vietnam War. These events, which occurred during a moment in Bush's life when he was particularly open to new experiences, experiences, left a profound impact on his worldview. To give you a taste of the diary itself, let me read you an example of of Bush's rich description of his journey through Beijing's massive May Day celebration in 1975, a festival that happened to coincide exactly with the communist victory in the Vietnam War and the fall of Saigon. In Bush's words, quote, May 1st, unbelievable, extremely difficult to describe. Six parks were all made over into playgrounds, all kinds of cultural performances, singing, children in the brightest colors of greens and reds and yellows and blues you've ever seen, banners all over. We were enchanted by the literally hundreds of thousands of people milling with great happiness through the park. There were all kinds of performances, singing, dancing, flowers, games. It was unbelievably spectacular, something that I couldn't quite visualize. I had always thought of May Day as tanks and Mao standing in the square with people running on by him. But that wasn't it. The square was crowded, but there were all crowds going into the parks. These parks, again, were like the summer palace, full of activities. Kids could drive little cars. They had all these industrial exhibits, derricks lifting, boats running, one warship firing its rockets into the air. The only thing there was a sign in there talking about supporting the people of Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam against U.S. imperialists. People were extremely friendly. I used the old giveaway Polaroid gambit, which Bush is doing here, and they were absolutely thrilled, particularly the children. I saw lots of South Vietnam tourists with their little signs, the whole aftermath of Vietnam making me slightly sick. But anyway, there was no animosity towards us anywhere that you could feel. End quote. This taste of the diary, I think, reveals the passion that Bush had for China. And it also reveals, I think, one of the particular pleasures of the diary in that it is written in Bush's own words, and one can easily hear that familiar, if unusual, cadence uh, when we're reading the diary, because we are, in fact, reading Bush's spoken words. Within the confines of his diary, Bush felt comfortable exploring the world as he found it in 1974 and articulating the lessons that remain with him throughout his days. And that world that Bush saw in 1974 was in flux. The China he ventured to was in the last throes of the Cultural Revolution, and the first days of the new internationalism that would see it soon become a world power. It was only two years after the once rabidly anti-communist Nixon had journeyed to Beijing to meet with Mao Zedong, that famous meeting dubbed in the West a new opening to China. What made this journey all the more epic is that Washington and Beijing had been at odds since the 1950 Communist Revolution. For nearly 25 years, the world's most populous country and the world's most powerful country had been in virtual isolation from each other. They had enjoyed no trade, no contacts, no cultural contacts, no diplomatic conversations. Sadly, in fact, their most meaningful joint experience had been shedding each other's blood during the Korean War. Nixon's visit to Beijing helped change all that. But though the two sides agreed to establish diplomatic channels in 1972, as was already mentioned tonight, they did not establish full diplomatic relations until 1979. Now, this requires a bit of explaining if we are to understand exactly what Bush's role in Beijing was then. For technically, he did not direct an embassy. He was not an official ambassador, at least not to China. He got to retain his title of ambassador for having served at the United Nations. He instead directed the liaison office, which was an embassy in all but name. Now the first American placed in that important position was David Bruce, one of the most esteemed and privileged diplomats of the 20th century, advisor to every single president from Franklin Roosevelt to Gerald Ford. Bruce was perfect for this job. He was experienced, he was articulate, he was aristocratic, he was unflappable. He was the ideal man to send into a wholly uncertain situation. And the only thing that the Americans knew about Beijing and knew about the liaison office in 1974 and, excuse me, 1973 when he arrived was that this was going to be a trying and difficult job. How then did Bush, given what I mentioned before about his relative inexperience in foreign affairs, come to replace Bruce less than two years later? Again, the answer involves a twist of fate, this one known as Watergate. For Bush played an important, though, ancillary role in the political whirlwind that eventually drove Nixon from office. He was named, of course, head of the Republican National Committee following Nixon's re-election in 1972, and it was therefore left to Bush as the public face of the Republican Party to defend Nixon at every turn against a political firestorm that soon swirled around him. Bush's loyal performance in this role nearly landed him the vice presidency when Gerald Ford took over. Bush was in fact Ford's second choice to become vice president, but the nod eventually went to Nelson Rockefeller. In the meantime, Watergate had exhausted Bush, nearly to the breaking point. By March of 1974, he admitted to a close friend that he, quote, longed for an escape. And an escape in my fantasy usually takes the form of running around in the boat in Maine with no telephone, especially, end quote. Now China would be his escape. After announcing Rockefeller's nomination for the vice presidency, Ford offered Bush a tempting reward for his loyal service to the party during Watergate. Specifically, Ford offered the chance to be ambassador to either London or to Paris. These were coveted posts. These were the most, two of the most dramatic and important posts that Ford had it within his power to grant. Bush instead told a shocked Ford, and by the way, he also told a shocked Barbara Bush, uh, that he'd much rather go to China far from the lights and sophistication of Europe, to where electricity was rationed, his travel would be restricted, where his phone would be listened to, his mail would be read, and where entertainment would be spotty at best. Officially, he told Ford that he saw China as the path to the future and that he wanted to help define a relationship he considered important for that future. I think, however, that there's another explanation for understanding Bush's unusual decision. Beijing was simply as far as a person could reasonably expect to get from Washington <laughs> in 1974, and Bush was simply exhausted. He was looking for a new opportunity, but he was also looking to get away. Indeed, in a revealing diary passage he recorded while flying to China, he wondered, quote, am I running from something? Am I leaving what with inflation, incivility in the press, and Watergate and all the ugliness? Am I taking the easy way out? End quote. He turned to China with a manic energy, which I think is best understood as a desire to work so hard on something entirely new so as to forget what he was running from. And he literally hit the ground running, emerging on his first morning in Beijing just as the sun was coming up, in order to take his dog for an inaugural jog around the city. This was not something that the aristocratic and staid ambassador Bruce would have ever done. Uh, As near as I can tell, this was something no one had ever done in Beijing by 1974. But it was something that the energetic Bush just did naturally. And the jog itself is significant for what it reflects about Bush's approach to his job in China, which he considered to no small extent a mission to improve Sino-American relations by improving personal ties between his staff and the Chinese. Whereas Bruce had kept a low profile in Beijing, avoiding the spotlight in order to avoid potentially offending the Chinese. Bush arrived determined to make friends with the Chinese because he believed that each country's national interests would be better served if their diplomats knew each other on a personal level. Bruce had directed the American staff in Beijing to live quietly. Bush instead chose to be in the public eye as much as possible. Bruce was driven around Beijing in a limousine. George and Barbara Bush each rode in the sea of Chinese bicycles. Bruce largely waited for invitations from Chinese officials. Bush issued them en masse. Indeed, in his first week in Beijing, Bush unilaterally decided that he and his staff would attend the very diplomatic receptions that Bruce had avoided. This was a decision that rankled Kissinger, who yearned to control every aspect of the Sino-American relationship. For Bush, however, one simply couldn't improve relations by sitting at home. Now, I should add here that part of what made this unilateral decision by Bush an important one has again to do with the, with the protocol involved with the fact the United States did not have an official embassy in Beijing. Um, diplomatic receptions and diplomatic events are ranked according to the importance of the country but only by the importance of the country based upon those with which the host country has formal relations. What this means in English is that Bush was treated personally like the representative of the most powerful country in the world. Whenever there was an important official event, however, he had to be ranked seated or placed in the receiving line below the least important country with which China had formal relations. In practical terms, as Bush describes it, he spent a lot of time standing next to the representative from the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Um, uh, I should note, by the way, he doesn't ever describe any conversations with that person. Bush's desire to personalize relations is central to understanding his broader conception of diplomacy, for he believed that diplomacy worked best when conducted by elites who knew each other not just as associates, but also as friends. Now, he never believed that friendship would trump national interest, but he did think that the little element of trust between leaders who were friends could help in times of crisis in particular smooth the rough waters of the international system. As he wrote in his diary, quote, my hyperadrenaline political instincts tell me that the fun of this job is going to be to do more, to make more contacts. Although everyone along the line says you will be frustrated, won't be able to make contacts, won't be able to meet people, they will never come to see you, et cetera, et cetera. I fear this may be true, but the fun will be in trying, End quote. Now, as this quote suggests, not everyone in Washington took kindly to Bush's plans. Kissinger, in fact, believed that Bush's efforts to win favor with the Chinese would prove pointless, And by the way, he never hesitated to tell Bush that his plans were pointless. They won't meet with you, he warned. And even if they did, they would never allow their personal feelings to influence their principled stances on international relations. In fact, Bush's quest to personalize Sino-American relations was openly ridiculed at the State Department among the career diplomats as naive in the extreme. As Kissinger aide and future ambassador to Beijing, Winston Lord, wrote his boss Kissinger, quote, Bush has energetic plans to try to meet as many significant Chinese as he possibly can, especially political leaders. We doubt that he will have any breakthrough in this regard, but you may wish to outline your concept of his proper role in the policy arena, and I'll ask you to note the word proper there. What Bush was doing in Washington circles was considered improper. Now, I should note that one of the truly interesting and significant and revealing aspects of the China Diary is a portrait that it paints of Kissinger, whom Bush found to be controlling, manipulative, petty, and uninterested in personal diplomacy. Kissinger, in other words, doesn't come off well in this book. Now, this is a point that the president tried to remedy during a preface that he wrote for this book, which he composed in 2007. He said, quote, when I reread the diary, I was amused by, I was amused by some of my frustrations with then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, a man whom I greatly respect and consider a friend and from whom I learned a great deal. It made me realize how much my views have changed since those days and just how much my experience in China changed me." That was how Bush described Kissinger in 2007. That was not how he described him in his private diary in 1974. And their ongoing argument over the efficacy of personal diplomacy, which in reality was an argument over how much Kissinger could control Bush from halfway around the world, helps explain the unflattering picture of Kissinger painted by Bush's diary. When Kissinger came to visit Beijing, seen here meeting with Deng Xiaoping, in fact, you'll note the gentleman uh, second from your left is a very young looking Donald Rumsfeld. When he came to visit Beijing, Bush was able to see his style of diplomacy from up close. As Bush recorded in the diary, quote, people on his staff are scared to death of Kissinger. It is unbelievable, too much so. There is too much entourage feeling, too much kind of turmoil. Is he coming? Is he coming? Is he late? Is he late? Nobody is willing to bite the bullet and speak up. Amazing, mixed feelings. Great respect for the man and his accomplishments, and yet concern about some of the trappings and some of his ways of handling people. There is certain graciousness that is lacking. No question about it. Ungracious, end quote. Um, For Bush, that's about as nasty a rebuke as one could possibly imagine. Uh, In fact, one of the things that's startling about this book, startling to me, maybe not to more sophisticated people, uh, is that there's not a single word of profanity in this book. Um, Bush, when he used the word ungracious, that's as mean as he possibly could get. I mention Bush's views of Kissinger because they demonstrate how much Bush learned from Kissinger, but primarily by viewing Kissinger as a foil for what not to do. If ever given the chance to run American foreign policy he mused, he would do things quite differently. Whereas Kissinger was controlling, Bush renewed his desire to be open. Whereas Kissinger wanted to keep relations on a coldly detached plane, Bush wanted to warm them through friendship. Ultimately, Bush's reflections on Kissinger offer some of the China Diary's most revealing passages, not only for the portrait that they paint, but for what they tell us about the painter. And though he was the one painting the portrait, I should note that the China Diary reveals not only Bush's hopes, but also his frustrations for dealing with China. For all that he longed to personalize Sino-American relations, the Chinese simply refused to meet him halfway. Scarred by the Cultural Revolution and fearful of being publicly too friendly towards the imperialist Americans, most Chinese leaders simply rebuffed Bush's frequent invitations. His invitations went unanswered, leading to frustration and to anger. As Bush wrote, quote, I am continually amazed at how hard it is to get close to the Chinese, they can be so obtuse, they can be so removed, so little chance for context. Middle Kingdom syndrome with an underlying hatred of foreigners is amazing. We are the foreigners, the barbarians. For polite people, they act in very strange and tough ways, end quote. Bush's ability to personalize sino American relations never lived up to his desires. Though the experience did not sour him entirely on the idea of personalizing diplomatic relations, it did, however, make him come to view personalized relations in a more nuanced fashion, appreciating the importance of domestic politics, for example. He still thought personal relations could smooth the rough waters. He just learned not to rely upon them. And again, he learned something else about diplomacy, though again through a negative example. He learned, for example, to speak quietly. At every turn, he encountered Chinese officials who privately told them of their desire to improve relations with the Americans, yet who publicly would lambast the Americans, calling them imperialists, calling them running dogs, blaming them for all the world's ills. And he could not fathom the disconnect between what they said publicly and what they said privately. As he recorded, quote, It is annoying beyond belief to read the attacks in the red news on the United States. China feels it must attack the U.S. I just have this inner feeling that these Chinese leaders do not subscribe to that view in its entirety. Perhaps I am wrong but I've heard them talk enough to know they don't believe it." Now this is more than just a question of politeness. For Bush believed that international relations could best run when leaders knew each other well. But international relations would be foiled, he believed, if the American public, or publics more broadly, listened to these harsh rebukes, listened to this criticism. If the American people, he feared, listened to what Chinese leaders were really saying publicly, They would demand action. They would demand retribution. They would demand a severance of ties. Bush was not anti-democratic in his understanding of diplomacy. There have been many American leaders throughout history who thought that the public had no role whatsoever to play in diplomacy. This was not Bush's view. Bush's view was non-democratic. He thought the international system functioned best when the public was kept for public affairs and when private matters were dealt with by leaders who knew each other well. The subtle difference is important, I think, but it helps to explain why it was that Bush in his later presidency, as I'll describe in a few moments, refused to speak harshly about foreign nations, preferring always to speak quietly. China's rhetoric left a mark on Bush, but so too did Vietnam. In fact, Bush was in China during the fall of Saigon, as I've mentioned, and this left one of the most profound influences upon his experience there, one of the most profound influences upon his legacy. Bush came to understand Vietnam as a mistake. He came to understand why he was there in Vietnam as a war that should not have been fought because it did not warrant the full necessity of America's full full resources. But being a forward-thinking person, Bush did not spend a lot of time wondering why it was that America got into Vietnam. He spent more time in the diary pondering what we could learn from the experience of Vietnam. And what he learned was twofold and important. First... He learned about credibility. He learned that America had to put its resources where those resources were needed most, that America could not go off, as he put it, on quixotic crusades. But at the same time, America had to back up what it said it would do. The two are interlinked and important. You only committed yourself, he said, after consultation with allies for things that truly mattered. When your allies knew what you were doing truly mattered, they would support you and then you had to back up what you did. This led to the second lesson about credibility that Bush took from Vietnam, and that is in in China he discovered, of all things, the domino theory. Now this is not the knee-jerk domino theory of the 1950s, the idea that countries would topple one after another to communist aggression. Rather, Bush understood the domino theory as a matter of credibility. While in Beijing, after Saigon fell, he saw Asian leaders by the dozen coming to Beijing essentially to pay homage to the new leaders of Asia, to the new power in Asia, to improve their relations with the Chinese. And Bush thought that what this meant for him was that when a country failed to fulfill its obligations, the other countries around, other American allies, would seek to move away from the power vacuum. They would go to the country that mattered most. In this case, it was China. He thought, therefore, that not only America had to fulfill its obligations, but that he understood it through terms of the domino theory, that if you did not fulfill your obligations, other countries would, in particular, begin to slide away from the United States. Now, all the lessons I've described thus far, and I'll conclude with this thought, played a truly remarkable role in his diplomacy while president. First, while president, Bush learned to place a premium on personal relations. As Brent Scrocroft, his national security advisor and close friend, would later put it, quote, he would call foreign leaders for no particular reason, just to say, hi, how are you? And when we really needed something, he'd go to them, and they were inclined to support us because they knew who he was, where he came from, and it just made a world of difference in our diplomacy, end quote. Now, this emphasis on personal diplomacy also meant an emphasis on quiet diplomacy. Again, this is what he had learned as a negative example for having witnessed the Chinese be so violent in their rhetoric. When the Berlin Wall fell, for example, and the Soviet Union began to crumble, many American policymakers, many American politicians urged a massive victory celebration. I mean, the Cold War had been a big deal. Now it was over. The American president should go to Berlin and give a victory speech, they said. Bush refused to do it. He refused, as he put it in his memoirs, quote, to dance on the wall, end quote. The reason he did this was because he did not want to make life harder for the communist leaders who he still had to work with, for he knew nothing would sour their publics on them, or excuse me, on the United States, than to have the president of the United States criticize their, their leaders and criticize their governments. As Bush explained, quote, Hot rhetoric would needlessly antagonize the militant elements within the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. End quote. Better to speak quietly, he said, especially when dealing with your friends. Now, this is not to say that Bush refused to take principled stands while president. We know, of course, about his principled stand in Kuwait, in defense of Kuwait against Saddam Hussein's aggression. This story is well known. But I would note that in Bush's response, we can see direct application of the lessons he took from Vietnam. We now know from recently declassified documents, such as the minutes of the National Security Council meetings in the immediate aftermath of that crisis, that Bush did not decide upon a military response to Hussein's aggression until after first lining up broad international support. But, and this is key, and this is, I think, one of the real insights we gain from this book, Bush did not decide upon a military response in Kuwait because he worried about Kuwait. Bush truly feared, we know from these newly declassified records, that if the United States did not respond in defense of Kuwait, other countries in the Persian Gulf region, Saudi Arabia in particular, would begin to reorient their policies towards the new center of power, towards Baghdad. This is why Bush referred to the Gulf War as the first test of the international system. It was a post-Cold War international system. It was the first test of whether the United States would stand by its commitments. Kuwait mattered less to Bush, we now know, than the concept of credibility and then the domino theory. And lastly, the final test of Bush's uh, presidential experience that related to China was, of course, Tiananmen Square, which has been mentioned already tonight. And in fact, when Chinese leaders ordered a violent crackdown on pro democracy protesters, many American leaders called for harsh rebukes. They called for sanctions. They called for a severance of ties. Harsh rebukes were not Bush's style. He still believed that peaceful relations with China held the key to the 21st century. And thus, fearful of doing anything that would damage long term relations with China, he fell back on what he knew best personal diplomacy. He sat down during the crisis to write a personal letter to Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping, a man, importantly, he had met in 1974 while in Beijing. It was a personal letter written in his own hand, one that stressed their own personal friendship that had gone back over 20 years at this point. He asked Deng if he could send a personal envoy to sort this out. Scowcroft went, in fact. But more important than this personal touch, Bush believes to this day that he only reacted in this way because he knew Chinese leaders and because he had known them and he understood why they reacted the way they did to these protests. Another president, by extension, might well have acted differently. They might well have imposed those sanctions. They might well have imposed that harsh rhetoric. They might not have relied on personal diplomacy. Whatever the results, Sino-American relations might very well be different today. In Bush's China Diary, therefore, we can see the inner thoughts of an American president at a fascinating moment in history. We can see a future president learning his trade. Bush is remembered today as an internationalist president, as one with particular skills and prowess within the international arena. That Bush presidency, I think, was indeed made in China. Thank you for your time. presentations on books, and i got to say, I think yours is one of the best I've ever heard. (laughs) Remember, please, we are podcasting tonight, so hold your question until the microphone is brought to you. We love your thoughts, but we really prefer your questions. So with that, hands up. Yes, sir.
1: Uh, do you think this uh, opening of relationship with China and the United States in seventy-two was the result of the war between India and Pakistan? And India apparently joined the Soviet side and signed the F- Indo-Soviet friendship date for 20 years. And that led to a shockwave in Washington. <coughs> and Washington thought India, China, and Soviet Union together would be a formidable force. So they had to take China away from Russia and that was probably the reason that Henry Kissinger went to China and got the Chinese away from the Russian side.
0: I think India played a crucial role, and I think that Kissinger in particular was fascinated by the geopolitics of South Asia. Um, and, of course, as, as you well know, backed the Pakistanis whenever possible. And, in fact, the Pakistanis helped set up the entryway for Kissinger's secret diplomacy to China before Nixon arrived. What I think has to be included in your analysis, though, is the fact that the Chinese and the Soviets were bitter enemies by this point, more bitter, in fact, than the Chinese and the Americans and the Soviets and the Americans. This is why Kissinger and Nixon were able to establish what most historians refer to as triangular diplomacy, essentially playing the Chinese and the Soviets off against each other. This works best from Kissinger's perspective if you can make the the Chinese your friend uh, in addition to being a bitter Soviet ally. I mean, we, we must remember that the Chinese and the Soviets engaged in a border war in the late 60s, um, that the Chinese built an extraordinary network of underground tunnels and, in fact, moved most of their industry from the coasts into the hinterlands, into the mountains, during the 1960s, not because they feared American attack, but because they feared Chi- a Soviet attack, and that all of China's defenses were geared at this point against a Soviet attack. And in fact, Kissinger played this brilliantly, illegally, but brilliantly. Uh, and I say illegally because one of the things he gave the Chinese during his first secret meetings with them was secret, top secret American satellite information of Soviet military movements, um, which he was not authorized, well, he was authorized by the president. He wasn't legally allowed to give. I guess, you know, there's a question as to whether the president can do whatever he wants legally, but... Um, Kissinger gave this top secret information to the Chinese not about uh, Indian movements, not about Pakistani movements but about Soviet military movements and in fact there's an interesting moment in the diary where um, Bush is confronted by British officials and by the British ambassador in particular who say to him, this is 1974 we've heard these bizarre rumors that Kissinger gave top secret information to the Chinese which can't possibly be true I mean, you know your enemies' with the chinese you 're friends with us. Why would you give y- the enemy something that you won 't give us? Bush, of course, denies the hilt. The British do an investigation to determine it couldn 't possibly be true. Uh, it turns out we now know it was true, um, largely because of how Kissinger viewed China as the key to the triangle of diplomacy with the Soviets.
1: Could you explain uh, again, please, your access to the diaries and the cooperation with George H.W. himself?
0: Yes, this is actually, um, I'm glad you asked that because um, President Bush has been every historian's dream. Uh, he's been extraordinary in this regard. The, the diary is his, is his personal property. Um, he signed it over to the library, but it was his and many people had gone to the president before and asked if they could publish it. And being a modest man, and he still, I think to this day, thinks no one should possibly be interested in what he had to say, Bush. Um, Bush did not believe that anybody would be interested in it, so he kept refusing opportunities to publish it. Um, I, being at the Bush School, was able to get some interviews with Bush about the diary. Um, It occurred to me only later that while I was interviewing Bush, he was interviewing me. And when we decided to go ahead and try to publish this book, he finally consented largely because we decided to go with a university press and to make this into as scholarly a a project as possible. He's been an absolute dream to work with in that part of the negotiations that led up to his signing the book over to me was his agreement, which he gave wholeheartedly, that he not see the final product until it was done. Um, all of the interpretation is mine, and he had no access to it. He had no uh, desi- He had no ability, nor any desire, to critique my work as a historian uh, in this book. He sat for interviews. He um, Barbara sat for interviews. Twenty um, for our education program. <laughs> uh, let's give a <laughs> hand. <for that. laughs> um, they both sat for interviews. They helped arrange uh, interviews with some of President Bush's colleagues, uh, James Baker and Scocroft, and, and so on. And also answered a lot of questions via email that only the person, the author, would have known uh, of the diary. But in terms of interpretation, he never once asked to have any input whatsoever. Um, and frankly, I, I think that he understands perfectly well the need for scholars and policymakers to operate in separate and. Uh, uh, in separate realms. He's, it, I, I really can't say enough about, about his work in this.
1: Based on your knowledge and what you learned from the diaries, how do you think the current President Bush learned or did not learn from the experiences? Because I can sense the personal diplomacy that exists, and I've heard di- personal diplomacy and yet a different approach mm-hmm. at this point. And maybe you have some insights on both sides of that story.
0: Um, Interesting enough, uh, <laughs> that wasn't just a plant. Um, George, w. Bush, George W. Bush visited China uh, during this period. Um, the senior Bush does not mention George W. very often in his diary, not nearly as often as he mentions his other children, despite the fact that George W. was there for quite a long period of time. Um, Apparently, George W. was extraordinarily impressed with the Chinese socialized medicine at the time because he had a bad tooth that had cost him $600 to fix in the United States and had not been fixed, and he went and paid a Chinese dentist 60 cents to have it fixed. Um, this imprint of socialized medicine, I think, did not last. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a really it's a, it's a puzzling question, um, one which I'm going to punt entirely. Uh, by saying that my interest is in H. W. Bush, and one of the real difficulties that I have in dealing with H- in working on H. W. Bush, is that, and, I, and I've just written this: we, we have a big, um, we have a big special forum on the diplomacy of H. W. Bush, that is coming out now. That's the 20th anniversary of his administration in the journal Diplomatic History, which is the the signature journal in our field, and. I'm writing the introduction to that, and I have to say that it is almost impossible to think about the senior Bush's diplomacy without, because we're human, reflexively thinking about what comes next. And that's very difficult to get away from, especially since, frankly, what I think connects the two diplomatically is far smaller than the differences between their styles. Tell us um, what moved President Bush to, or Ambassador Bush at that time to leave and, and, and what, how was how that decision made to leave China? Uh, he left because he was offered the job of um, Central Intelligence Agency head, uh, chief of the CIA, uh, during a massive reshuffling of Ford's foreign policy. Kissinger was moved out of the State Department, or excuse me, moved solely to the State Department. He, he, he had for a short time been the only person to be National Security Advisor and Secretary of State uh, Brent Scowcroft became Secretary of State under Ford. Uh, Bush was brought back to be Central Intelligence Head, and the official line is that Bush recalled the line from his father, that his father said when the president asks you to do something, the proper answer is yes, um, and therefore he went back. He called his he called his family, he called his sons, he called George W. Actually, and said. Canvas the kids, ask them if this is okay. Because the CIA was not particularly well thought of in American society in the 1970s. Ask your brothers and sister what you think, how you think we should, what you think we should do. Uh, apparently, George W. called back about 30 seconds later and said, "Well, I've canvassed all the kids, and they say it's fine." Now, the point of the story is he didn't canvass all the kids in 30 seconds. He was sort of making a point of his own that we believe whatever you decide to do is the right thing, Dad. Um, I think there's another part of the story, though, in that Bush is really frustrated with his time in China. The diary actually ends about four and a half months before he leaves China. And I think that that's symbolic because time and again Bush is describing his frustration, his anger, his, his um, utter inability to get the Chinese to meet with him the way he wants. And he sort of throws in the towel. I think, on the Chinese at this point. He still thinks they're important, but he knows he's not going to be able to recreate the kind of personal relations he wants. He's gotten the exhaustion of Watergate out of his system. So when the president says, come back to Washington, he he's ready to go.
1: I was going to ask the same question that he was going to ask, and I realized you said you were going to pun it, but I think that the thing that I took from your presentation is the fact that with his UN experience and with his China experience, it, you're talking about a whole different background right. with HW versus his son, and just being a son isn't going to get you where you need to be on the diplomatic front. So I, I just I was curious if you would agree that because of that background, that the Tim and Square example and all that, that that's where he really just had the edge on his son, being able to be known for doing so well with the international relationships.
0: I I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Bush, when he was vice president in particular, was given a tremendous amount of leeway and a tremendous amount of um, privilege in the foreign policy realm, much more so than the typical vice president. Bush was often sent to sign treaties and negotiate with treaties. He, of course, went to every funeral of a foreign leader. He had a a famous joke that he said his motto as vice president was, you die, I fly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's revealing in that when he becomes president, he personally knows all of these leaders. When he would go to a funeral, he would take the time to meet as many of the different politicians in those countries as possible. I think that he instinctively believed that people mattered um, and that trust mattered, but importantly that the international system only functioned, and he describes this in great detail in his diary, the international system only functions when the United States not only leads, but listens. And you have to, the United States needs to listen to what its allies are saying as a way not only of learning, but also of building consensus. And that's, I think, intrinsic to everything he did while president. I think
1: that's a good last
0: quote.
1: For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld dot org